Welcome to Out of Home Insider, the first podcast for media and marketing executives that connects how offline attention drives conversion. My name is Tim Rowe, and for the past four years, I've been interviewing guests about their unique insights in bridging this misunderstood and undervalued opportunity for brands to create alchemy in the real world. Today's guest is Ray Guimau. Ray is the Director of Strategy at Price Spider, a platform that bridges the gap between brand marketing and performance marketing to enable full funnel insights for some of the biggest companies in the world, like Lowe's, Home Depot, eBay, Walmart, just to name a few. We talk about how consumer behavior has changed after COVID and how modern brands continue to optimize the total customer experience, blending the physical and digital shopping experiences to create a modern take on the way we shop. And that's the big idea I'd like you to consider today. How can you blend the concepts we've discussed here the past few weeks? Whether it's the future of how we shop for clothes, changing the way New York City eats, how in-store retail media and programmatic rails can unlock new growth, or how location marketing is evolving every day in the palm of our hands. It's all focused on one objective, how brands show up in the real world. So how can you blend seemingly unrelated ideas to evolve your thesis? That's the big idea I'd like you to consider. And I didn't know this. I actually had to look it up. But did you know that billboards have been banned in Hawaii since 1927? I actually thought it was more recent than that. But the reason I mention it is because my good friend, Jean-Paul Gedeon, who wraps the intro to the podcast and has graciously lent some of his other music to me for the outro, also happens to be the foremost out-of-home media company in Hawaii which I realize seems like a conflict to what I just said about billboards being banned. But what Jean-Paul has done is develop a full funnel network of place-based digital and static media in all of the most valuable places on all of the islands. And I think that a lot of folks forget about Hawaii when they're planning media. But if you're buying a top 20 DMA, I really do believe you should be allocating some percentage of that buy to covering off in Hawaii. And I'd really encourage you to work with Jean-Paul for two really specific reasons. The first is that Jean-Paul's company is a local family-owned business. So you're getting white glove service and on-the-ground intel. And two, I think this is really an interesting reason from a business standpoint, is that out-of-home is not their primary business. They're actually a service company first, a printing company second, and an out-of-home media company third. So you've got the full value chain, speed to market, and it means that they don't need to make all of their money on media, which means you en- end up getting crazy value. So Jean-Paul is a friend and a friend of the show and continues to support this cause a ton. Jean-Paul, thank you. I uh, couldn't think of a better way to say thank you than to make sure that you know about his company. So check out jpghawaii.com. And without further ado, let's go. Welcome, everybody, to the Out of Home Insider Show, a podcast like no other, hosted by the one and only Tim Rowe. Get ready to have some knowledge dropped on you and to be entertained because nothing's more valuable than food for your brain. So sit back, relax, we're about to dive in as the best industry podcast is about to begin. In April of 2015, Google published a piece titled How Micro Moments Are Changing the Rules. In it, Google outlines how the modern marketing funnel as we know it, awareness, engagement, conversion, or AIDA for the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross fans out there, 
had changed. That the evidence for winning hearts and minds on the path to purchase and ultimately to dollar signs came down to four major touch points or moments that matter most when someone wants to know something, go somewhere, do something, or buy something. Pretty simple. But the last few years have dramatically shifted the way we do things. Gone are the five-day city commutes and with it, transit ridership, eyeballs, spending, and everything that comes with it. But it's not just big cities that have been affected. The suburbs have changed too. And thus, so has the way we buy things. So as a brand, as a founder, as a marketer, how do you optimize the modern path to purchase? What has changed? Who owns your data? And most importantly, how do you influence ROI at every touch point? That's what we're going to find out today. Ray, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure to be with you today to speak. It's going to be a fun one because we're <laughs> going to start the conversation. I had personally, I had the A-team ringtone on my T-Mobile flip phone with a camera. This was circa 2003. But you that that's where I think we, we initially connected on was kind of the your origin story of selling ringtones. There's probably folks listening to this that are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I think you... the flip phone's coming back. Ringtones are going to come back. We're bringing the flip gonna phone go, back. I think we're going to go full silk girl here at, at 25 years plus, right? I saw Dennis Robin, um, Dennis Robin has a flip phone. So yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Tell us about the flip phones, the ringtones, and uh, and how we get to data and the path to purchase. Sure. How do we how do we get to present state with Price Fighter? So yeah, previously, and if, if you looked at my LinkedIn, you'll see I also have a master's in medieval literature. I love that interview question when people are like, what does that have to do with like e-commerce and marketing? And I always say it's it's that classic, you know, we have a hero in our story. And I love to ask brands, you know, who is that hero? And brands often like, well, we're the hero. And I'm like, unfortunately, you're not the hero. It's your shopper mm. who's the hero. You're like the old lady in the woods with the apple or the magical genie you know, lantern that is going to give that to your consumer to make them the hero of their story. And how does that connect to re re uh, ringtones? I got started um, actually in academic publishing. And so working on uh, WebCT, Blackboard, and like really going back to like, how do you take that CD of, of content for college courses and make it into online, make it into SaaS-based platforms? Um, that quickly morphed into working for Warner Music, you know, New York, early 2000s, not a ton of money when you're talking about, you know, publishing. Um, and started to work on uh, how to monetize different pieces of, you know, obviously artist work. And so that was where um, backgrounds were really cool. If you could get the album background is like your MySpace profile background, um, you know, download a little clip it, pay for it for ringtones of like the latest release. Um, and that I joined that kind of in the early 2000s, just after um, digital music had outsold the physical CD. And everybody kind of freaked out. It was like, what's happening? You know, is the death of the store coming? Um, and I think we've still been in a lot of that conversation as we've seen more retailers and more brands spin up e-commerce. Um, obviously, throughout the pandemic, we had a lot of movement there too, um, with shoppers wanting to purchase things online and have that engagement um, versus going in-store. So yeah, from from ringtones to now working in digital shelf and in support of like the brand and the shopper. So we have better experiences online, um, but also we can get brands you know, data to help them optimize that experience. It's kind of where it all comes full circle. We hear a lot about omni-channel and, and you know the kind of the marketing side of this, but the idea of the digital shelf and the omni-shelf, and that's what we're going to talk about here. But it really comes down to where am I connecting with the people who buy my product? Where are they? Maybe for yes. folks that are, are listening to this that, that aren't in that day-to-day, -day, what does it all mean? What does that mean, omni-shelf? Yeah. So there I like to put ourselves like we're all shoppers, right? Hopefully, I mean, people are listening to a podcast, right? They probably purchased something online through e-commerce, hopefully. Um, where did you go to that? Were you at a retailer page? Did you start with search? Maybe you were shopping. You didn't even know you were shopping. Maybe you were browsing on Instagram. And now we've seen those shop now buttons pop up in Instagram, gives me a link to a product page. Oh, look, I can check out and get to the cart. So 
I like to think of a digital shelf as anywhere you have products in which a customer or potential customer can follow that journey to check out to a cart, get it delivered to their home. So um, it's not just that product detail page that we think about on our Amazons or on our Targets, Walmarts. It's also um, curated pages like bestsellers, hot items. You've seen Amazon do a lot of playing around with those subcategories of assortments online, as well as you know the Target app, mobile shopping, having you know emails come in and they're sort of giving you that shop now. And then you get linked either to the retailer page directly, or you're on a landing page that gives you maybe three different options for that product that you click through. All of those are digital shelves because it's the opportunity for someone to complete that conversion path um, and obviously have that product um, be sold by the brand. How important is it then with so many places as a modern business that sells a tangible product, obviously being in as many stores as possible, whether they're digital or physical, getting as much distribution as possible is really, really important. But at the same time, then managing kind of the accountability piece, how do you make sure that you know, the customer is paying the same price in every market from every retailer. It seems like accountability becomes a challenge with scale from a distribution standpoint. How important is that? That is the key. Um, it really is. And also, how can you help that online experience perhaps drive click and collect? So maybe I purchase everything online, but I want to go do my target pickup, right? Um, we're now starting to Love see retail pickup. stores. Like, yeah. I mean, who doesn't want a Target pickup? Um, and then you add more things or you go in store and buy more things. I get the Starbucks. Uh, which is Target, it's waiting for which me. Is, which is what, yeah. Well, actually, if you're shopping via the Target app now, you can actually add a Starbucks to your mobile app order in some, in some locations for click and collect. So um, they know their consumer. They know their consumer, um, you know, kind of wants those experiences or they're going to be delighted by being able to have that option. Um, but it's really about how can you drive brick and mortar and online together and be in front of, be discoverable, searchable, where you have the potential, not only for your loyal customers, people who know to go to your brand.com or have their preferred retailer to shop, but also those who might be browsing or researching. So we definitely have generational change happening with shoppers and particularly speaking US as well as global. Um, we've got that digital first generation. They don't, they don't remember, think about it. They are coming into their buying power. So our centennial children, you know, are now hitting 21, 22, 23. Um, they don't really probably remember life before an iPhone. The first smartphone came out in 2007. And that's where they I always did not like, get my A team flip phone reference. At they all. did not. I mean, I had one of those like Nokia super heavy phones. And then, you know, when the Razor came out, still a flip phone, right? But that was, that's probably where I purchased my first ringtone on that phone. Um, but that's where it really becomes about, you know, planning for the now, but planning for the future and the innovation. And we've seen a lot of innovation happen with how shoppers want to shop, how consumers want to research products, buy products, engage with that brand. And it really becomes, how do you know which of those channels and which of those marketing opportunities are going to give you the most bang for your buck? And that might just be straight up ROI and conversion dollars. But awareness is a big one. Um, the pandemic really step changed a lot of other categories outside of consumer packaged goods or households, um, where you're, you're okay buying things like consumer electronics, TVs, smartphones, uh, computers, laptops, but hardware as well completely online, like you're more comfortable with those experiences. And so with that comes, how do you protect against cart abandonment? E-commerce cart abandonment rates are super high. How do you protect against returns and the cost of returns? And how do you ensure, you know, that to your point, you have your products available, your assortment connected to where you're going to find your shoppers? Like not all retailers are the same, depending on who your core consumer is, where are you going to find them? And where do you think they're going to be most loyal? Cart abandonment, it's it's interesting when we think about that concept kind of applied to 
the physical space. We see you know, a lot of unplanned purchases in the physical retail environment. 83% of purchases still taking place in, inside of a brick and mortar store. How, how do brands start to apply some of the insights that we've developed from D2C, from these online digital feedback loops? How do you start to apply some of those methodologies and thinking to the physical space? Yeah. And so that's really where it comes to, um, as I, I, don't, I don't think I mentioned in the run-up, is that um, I come from brand and agency, and now I'm over on the staff side of the biz. So that data acquisition, that technology, um, is kind of really, I feel like I've come back like to my roots of it. What's the information we can use to um, optimize you know, our marketing targeting to consumers, to understand which channels are most viable? And that really comes to like engagement all along that path of purchase. And so um, it's keeping retailers accountable in those authorized seller programs, like for price, for images, for um, you know updating content in a timely manner. Um, when I talk to people who have you know worked with Amazon for shopper marketing and have and have been in Vendor Central, you know, raise your hand who's ever you know done a ticket because you've updated it, you know, in Vendor Central, but it's not showing live on your product, and you've got a really big campaign that you're running that you know you want pricing to be right, you want your images, your new video, everything that you have done research on that helps move that product into the cart into checkout. Um, for a sale and not a return, you know, you want your retailer to be really accountable um, to helping working with you in a partnership to help, you know, make that sale. I always say brands want to sell more product. Retailers absolutely want to sell more product. But the devil there is in the details is what I expect to see online is the brand actually happening. Um, and that's where I kind of get into the crawling technology of PriceBiter to help um, in what those experiences look like. So from top of funnel, how can I connect my shoppers to those PDPs? We have a where to buy shoppable solution down through how do I enforce price? How do I make sure I can send cease, you know, stop cease desist letters to Don't sellers on e- eBay or those third party, those third party people who are selling, you know, my, my products at a lower price. And then, you know, what that shopper experience is. So I spend how a lot of my time on brand monitor. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt there, but just, yeah. uh, you made me think just instantly of, Friend of mine, Chris Mead, uh, an early guest of the podcast, and and you know an early uh, advertiser for for uh, you know uh, in my time here in the space and working with with that brand, but thinking about that, the third party sellers, how much of a problem is that? Like, what is the financial impact of third party? It impacts sellers every brand. To brands, yeah. I would say whether a brand knows it or not, it is impacting them because we've seen. I mean, if you're a brand who's been on Amazon, you know, a lot of the brands that we talk to, they're they're under pressure in their category. There's new quote unquote brands or sellers that pop up, right? They're losing the buy box, you know, maybe based on availability or price, depending upon how that goes. You know, that's a loss of dollars, especially if you have advertising and all of a sudden a third party takes over the buy box, right? Um, pricing is is a big one, I think, with seeing like the Shoppies, the Timus, the Sheen kind of come into the US market. Um, there's more options than just eBay if you want to go find, quote unquote, you know, what you think is a brand quality product at a discount price. Um, and consumers are under pressure in their wallet. So it's something, you know, we saw coming out of the pandemic. I feel like we kind of had the heyday of the 2020s, um, like the roaring 20s. But I was just looking at CPI seasonally adjusted. And for the 12 months, it's still at a 3.7%, which means, you know, prices, prices haven't, you know, come down beyond like what the inflation that we've seen, particularly in the US over the past 12 months, and things are still costing more food, shelter, apparel, uh, medical transportation. And what does that mean? They have less dollars to play with when you think of discretionary spending. So they're going to look for quality, but they're going to look for value. And they're probably going to be more motivated to purchase if they have perception of value. Um, and sort of price and promotion. And so I think it's a it's a big one. A lot of retailers have seen 
um, that sort of tentative consumer over the last couple of quarters. Like right now is kind of a big Q2, you know, earnings are starting to come out. And so it's looking at Home Depot, looking at brands as well as the retailers to try to understand how is the holiday season in the US going to shape up? I think you're still going to see a tentative shopper. They might spend money on fun and functional things, but you really have to do more and catch them, you know, out of the house to really incentivize like that purchase or, or to be top of mind. I know we were, t- we were talking about QR codes and last mile delivery. Um, what are some other areas in which you can kind of help spur that moment to purchase um, versus, versus just browse and delay? Touching on the, that, that kind of cost conscious consumer. And you said Home Depot and this, sorry, Home Depot, this is not a jab at you. I love you. I love you <laughs> dearly. But I got the email the other day, the APR on your Home Depot card has gone up. And you're seeing yes. it in the news headlines, you know, APR is up 30%, not yes. the rate is 30%. Rates went up 30%. So if you were paying $3, now you're paying 4 because it went up another dollar. So that, that kind of put me back and said, wow, okay, like this is, this is definitely a dynamic now. So the cost of variable debt, even if I am as a consumer going to go buy a new stove and yep. think about putting on that credit card, that might enable me now to to cook a better omelet, but I'm going to be paying more for that stove over the next few months of paying it off. I mean, who who doesn't want to pay interest on inflation? Really? Like, I mean, that's kind of how I Golly. think about it. And, and I was like, did you read my notes? Because I just looked at um, Forbes had sort of like the average credit card debt, um, you know, 2020 to 20, 2022 to 2023. And the from 2022. And you have to also remember student loan interest has started to accrue again in the US as of September right. 1st. And payments are starting to be due October 1st. So you kind of add all those things up um, as a brand, as a retailer, how are you going to incentivize shoppers to not delay purchase um, and to keep their basket sizes, right? The total dollars in the basket, you know, same. I think if you're if you're keeping same as a brand, you're winning. Right, because a lot of brands have seen pressure from trade down. Um, you know, store owned Walmart. Man, Walmart and their Q1 uh, earnings report was so very different than Target because they noted that more shoppers, you know, making over 100k a year in a salary, were coming on to like their Walmart um, club subscription. They also noted that you know the, their best value line has been doing really great. Well, you know, consumer, we've been starting to see consumers all across the social economic. Um, stratus, you know, make those decisions, shop more at discount, shop more at club. Um, and I can't help but think for Home Depot. Um, if, did you notice like they changed over to Halloween in July? July. I know I went yeah. back actually. I was thinking about, I was thinking about getting myself new cushions for my patio furniture, yes. taking advantage of the end of season discount, which I would imagine should be happening the You've end of August, the ending, uh, end of September. Oh, yeah. yeah, but no. No, you're Hall- already into Halloween. And, and I think so. I think Christmas is probably going to start showing up in October, right? Maybe end of September. I don't know. Just continuing to pull buying cycles forward and, and, and hoping that there's relief kind of on the back end of that. I think from the marketing standpoint, I'd love your insight, you know, from the, the, the dynamic experience that you have, the risk of brand erosion as we start to make cost cutting decisions, as we start to you know, take advantage of last mile delivery services because of maybe attrition in the workforce and there's not as many truck drivers and, and these other factors at play, the, the risk of brand equity just evaporating and these third party kind of companies stepping in. What what do you think about it? Am I crazy? Am I, am I, am I sounding like a Looney Tune? Like, is there a risk? <laughs> 
there's definitely a risk. I mean, it's not all gloom and doom um, to continue with the Halloween theme. But I think that um, some consumers will trade down because they have no choice because the cost, I mean, energy has gone down. We'll see if energy goes up right as we kick toward like the cooler months in the US, something to keep in mind. But um, some consumers will have no choice. So if your targeted consumer um, has the demographic of spending more on food, more on shelter, more on transportation and medical care, you're going to have to look at your assortment of products and say, okay, where's your value play? What can you do with bulk? What can you do with packaging, bundling? Um, you know, because promotions that are dollars, there's only so much price erosion you can give yourself as a brand, let alone anyone else out there who is not abiding by your minimum advertised price or an authorized seller agreement, right? Um, how do you sell, stop Tommy out of like, you know, Salt Lake City, Utah, Damn like it, discounting Tommy. a bunch of your product because he got it available via wholesale somehow, right? It's a big problem some, from, for some brands, even some well-known sporting good brands all the way to hardware um, and everything I feel like in between. Um, you're going to have to take a hard look at your assortment that you have available in store, as well as what are you pushing online? Online, we often say and see with brands that it's 20% of that assortment that really drives 80% of the sales. So do you even need to offer those smaller ones that someone's not going to pay for shipping? That's right. not going to you know, be incentivized because it's a pack count or a bulk count, you know, to make that purchase online. So it's really about understanding the assortment um, and your consumer, which if you're a brand who has a pretty good sustainability program and you know, your consumer cares about that, what is the practice of the brand? How do they care about the environment, people, um, those connections? There are shoppers who will continue to pay for quality products from brands that support their values. And so mm. um, you have to consider where that consumer puts their values, not only on their dollars, but also in what is being a part of this brand say. And I will say for younger generations, particularly in the US, that is a very important piece of where they choose to spend their money. Let's play a, let's play a hypothetical game here. If you were a brand, how would you... So one of, one of the exciting kind of ad platforms for us in out-of-home advertising, there's, there's a lot of folks listening that are involved with this space, is using specifically some of these last mile delivery platforms as ad platforms. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, delivery trucks or uh, you know, rideshare vehicles that are wrapped in branded advertising. How would you, if, if you were, if you were making decisions for a brand right now, how would you look at last mile delivery as an ad channel, as a way to connect with consumers who maybe aren't taking transit into the office as much anymore? Who, mm -hmm. like myself, I sit here and, 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 and I've probably told this story before, but I look out this window, my desk is at a window here and kind of looks out onto the street and I see box trucks go by all day. Yeah. But Raymore Flanagan has has a frequency of like a million with me because I see their truck at least <laughs> once a day, at least once a day. My neighbors are all getting new furniture apparently more often than I am, or we've got new folks moving in, but I see that truck and I'm not in the market, but Raymore Flanagan is getting free attention from me. So I'm curious uh, if you if you were making those decisions what would you be doing or how would you consider working with last mile delivery from an ad standpoint? I think I would, I would want to test and learn by um, some of my distribution locations where I know I have, um, I'll use the Home Depot example. This is becoming like a Home Depot cast. Home Depot, um, Home Depot you can come back and you can, <laughs> you can reduce my, my rate so I can get that stove and, and we'll just call it even. So um, I'll, I'll use my own experience, right? I'm a shopper, but I'm in this all day. So it's really hard for me not to like find someone at corporate and send an email and be like, please, please, please tell me the rationale here. So ordered a bunch of product from Home Depot, doing a little renovation in the side yard, you know, nothing exciting shot, you know, rocks, you know, tiles, that kind of stuff. 
Um, and I was like, oh, wow, I can get it delivered. Now, there is a Home Depot less than a mile from my house. Okay. But I wanted heavy items and they were different things that you would use for landscaping. You know what? Convenience for me. Um, why go look at the store, figure it out, put it all in the cart, ship it all myself. If I could pay someone to pick it up, ship it to me. You know, I actually thought Home Depot was shipping it out in a Home Depot truck. No, not the case. So, Tim, I had three different, three or four different. The last one came via FedEx. What? Um, but the first two were just random cars that showed up um, at my front door because Poor obviously souls. they're using sort of like a last mile, um, you know, shopper delivery service. Um, but the cars were general cars. It's not like we, you know, pizza delivery, right? Where you had like the Domino's or the pizza, sure. you know, hut, the shark at least on, on the top. car. So you knew there was an identity, but also great out of the home marketing, right? Um, so I think it'd be really interesting to, to, to consider QR codes. We know coming out of the pandemic, more households or everyone has a smartphone in their hand most of the time, um, scanning it at concerts, scanning it on, maybe doing some truck wraps some fun car wraps. You know, what if you partnered, um, you know, with someone like an Instacart or a DoorDash in mm. which, you know, you were also then advertising, you know, on that vehicle. Well, um, it also gets to, you know, hopefully there's also skin in the game for delivery drivers who are doing this as well. Um, especially if you consider, you know, it's, it's gig work. Right. Um, but it was interesting because I went with Home Depot cause I, I wanted the product in stock. I could find what I wanted, you know, sort through my convenience research online and then get it delivered for, you know, the cool figure. I think my delivery was like $79. I did not have the expectation that that would be delivered by three different sources across five different days. That's not actually a Home Depot convenient. experience. I, yeah. I, actually it missed the delivery date they had set. So I'm like, I did not do any yard work over Labor Day, like, you know, Americans tend to do. Now that project is happening this weekend because I finally have all my stuff. Um, not the experience I really wanted through Home Depot home delivery. Um, For someone so that lives like, a mile down the road from a Home I Depot. Just, I should have just, well, and part of it was there was a product that wasn't in stock at my store, but they're like, we can ship it to you and it would still be there like in time for my project, right? Um, that didn't happen anyways. But now I'm just completely disappointed because it would give me pause in ordering by delivery, like I paid the delivery charge, you know, yeah. through that, I, I, now I might just go in store because I had a really bad last mile delivery experience, you know, reference that with Costco, haven't ordered Costco delivery in ages was super busy traveling a lot this month said, okay, get snacks for the kids. Knew when my shopper was shopping, knew it was all fulfilled, delivered to my door, you know, again, no marketing on that car. Right. But that's an opportunity too. also, there's an opportunity to put in a, a coupon code, a promotion a something to incentivize me to do that again. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, cause clearly that was more of an Instacart where a shopper was shopping at the store. Um, but there was nothing else that I got in that to incentivize me maybe to go through that channel again. So it's about how can you market that last mile, but make that channel loyal, make it sticky. Um, Home Depot, unless I'm getting like doors or, you know, a stove, I might not do delivery again. I'll probably say I'll, I'll take it myself and go, go in stock or just have it shipped directly to the store and then pick it up myself. Um, you know, Costco and Target, you know, continue to offer, at least in my own experience, as expected or even more like delightful experiences when it comes to either me doing the work of picking up, you know, of shopping in store, you know, myself or, um, you know, doing click and collect, right? People love their drive up, um, to grab their groceries. A lot, a lot more people are doing that, um, just in terms of the supermarket as well, because then you know what's actually in stock or not in stock. There's a lot in the, the data kind of soup that, all of these things that we've talked about today, it all comes together to tell a story. I think there's an important piece that doesn't get talked about often enough in that story, which is who owns the data. With all of these new channels, how, how should brands be thinking about the ownership of that data? 
I think for brands, so with um, personal identification information, so PII, and then in Europe, you have the GDPR. So you have to really understand as a brand, what engagements provide that first party consent. So where if you're on a brand.com website, we all get the cookie notification now. Um, Yes, you're tracking me. Yes, I'm okay with that. Um, So then I probably have a unique identifier number, right? That the brand can use to track my engagement. When it comes to things like advertising, marketing, um, even through, as I mentioned, like our where to buy products, let's say I'm on a shoppable powered by price fighter, I get served a social media ad. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, I want to go shop that now go to a landing page, click out. Um, it really depends on where in that interaction are you getting the consent to be able to then um, mm. track that information. So PriceFighter, we actually don't collect any PII. We're able, if a brand has Google Analytics or their own, to kind of match that up in the data. Um, but it really is for a brand to understand between the retailer, their technology partners in the space, as well as themselves, where they're getting third-party and first-party data. With the ISO updates for iPhone and a couple others, um, you know, Consumers can now elect not to be tracked. Consumers really do care about who is collecting their data, where it's being shared. And so, you know, a first party data is becoming more of that um, priority for brands uh, because relying on third party data might go down a little bit depending on, you know, where you can get those groups available, right? If, if we've got less opportunity because of the changes in consumers' demand to take back their privacy and their data, then how can a brand supplement? So that's, that's partly where, um, PriceFighter uses things like data insights through our where to buy, where um, you can, depending on what the retailer shares with us, see what was in the carts. Did they purchase that product they were marketed to? What other product did they purchase? What were the other things in the cart or in the basket of this shopper? Um, shopper habits and demographics, you know, what else is in that cart with me is really important for brands to understand because then they can remarket to different audience or segments. So they might not be in market for my product, but maybe they're in the lifestyle for my product. And now I can start to say, hey, maybe I do want to run some marketing. Um, you know, with sparkling water, along with chocolate, you know, along with my coffee product or exercise gear, things like that. So where can I find my potential consumer um, in sort of that discovery advertising? And that's where I think out of the home too is an, an, is an interesting place because um, you can do geolocation, you can look at demographic data and decide where do you maybe want to wrap, wrap cars, do some concert QR code things, um, even just offer, you know, work with a Costco on getting something into that you know, Instacart delivery. An insert, like, something. An, something. Newspaper might be dead, but the insert is very much <laughs> Email alive. marketing I, is not. I'd say email marketing is not. Email marketing is a channel that is becoming more important, especially given a lot of the data privacy changes. You, if you can get that email consent, you know, that's why you've seen on a lot of brand.coms, like, you know, get that free first order, 10% off, 20% right. off, because by doing that consent and getting that email, they now can remarket it to you unless you unsubscribe from that and say, please don't bother me. Those um, owned channels. Owned channels um, is is very useful in helping to collect some of that data that you can then use, you know, for your retailer partners or, you know, for marketing, either out of the home within social um, or, as I mentioned, I mean, maybe, maybe flyers, you know, things like that. Kind of a little bit more old school, if you will. But again, knowing the average consumer is under pressure in their wallet, um, you know, maybe mailers might be an interesting test and learn opportunity to try out again. And, you know, check your own mailbox, see what's in there. If there's, you know, if you keep getting the same offers each month, it's not because (laughs) they have a crush on you. It's because it's working. It's because they're getting response. And I think that, you know, you look around for these, where, where is their underpriced attention? Where are their opportunities? That's it. At the end of the day, it's what we're doing is arbitraging attention and trying to, to buy it for one price and sell enough product that we make 
you know, a, a, a delta, a, a margin above that. So thinking about measurement and the original idea that we led with influencing ROI at every touch point, $232 billion is going to be spent on location marketing. That's kind of the pie that mm-hmm. we think about here and in, in, in the, the universe that we live in. For brands that are investing, for brands that are looking at the modern consumer, the buyer journey, all of these things, measurements, tough, like right? everyone's got an answer. Everyone, it's, it's multiple touch points. It's, it's being yeah. able to, to source the information that makes sense for, for your brand. What, what, what would you leave off with? What would you give someone listening as advice, a takeaway about measurement and being able to measure ROI at every touch point? I think that it's important to understand whether it's your brand technology, a vendor partner or retailer technology, what data are you getting from those, you know, touch points that support the KPIs you're trying to drive, drive for your business goals. So um, when I work on our tools, such as brand monitor or shoppable solutions, it's about saying what metrics are going to get you to those KPIs that are, you're going to ultimately realize your brand goals. And where, where are we going to find those metrics? They're in the data. And so it's really about um, if we're talking, for example, let's go with media marketing shoppable. Um, I want to know of my campaigns that I am running. Like, what was the click-through value? What was the purchase lead value? Where did they ultimately go to purchase the products? Um, you know, what was the total count in that basket? What other things were in that basket? And more importantly, like, did they purchase competitor products as well? And so that's really about understanding um, if you're using a vendor like PriceBite or the retail partnerships, because vendors who have really good retail partnerships um, will have retailers um, pass back that data to get through the insights that a brand can then use with their own um, POS data and other metrics they have about returns, conversions, things like that, to then really put together that whole ROI equation. Um, you know, how can we optimize that ad spend in real time? And it's not saying let's wait until the campaign runs. Um, shoppers, you know, are changing habits so quickly depending on, you know, where things are ebb and flowing right now. I think we've seen a little bit more of a steady state. Um, but there's some big things, as you mentioned with APR, um, we talked about student loans and inflation that are still going to impact their dollars. And so where can I make changes in real time? And I think that's the biggest thing. I want to be able to test and learn and then optimize, not three days after I start my campaign. I want to know within that first 12 hours, 24 hours. Um, what else can I do? So I think speed to delivery of that data is really important, as well as what levers can I also pull if I'm spending even a penny on marketing? And that's really where it comes down to like digital shelf analytics. You mentioned previously, like how, how can we ensure retailers are really setting up that product page or that SKU for how the brand knows, you know, it's going to move conversion. Um, I really like Price Spider's crawling technology because we actually crawl at the PDP level, meaning uh, we show you the product detail page from the eye of the shopper. Um, you know, I can get so like really good I data. Yes. When you go, I want to know what Tim sees, um, like what's, what's, what's a product you want to share that you've most recently purchased? What's the last product page you're on? Oh my gosh. This is, it's, it's not even that I'm embarrassed. It's that I don't do <laughs> a lot of online shopping. Let's see. It was probably something for my son. Um, oh, I know, I know it paint pen markers for my son. Yes. A very specific kind. It was actually a, a French brand, I think, that I won't not try to pronounce, but it was a specific kind of paint pen markers. Did you find what you needed to know if it was the right one? Were you looking at waterproof, washable, 
um, permanent? Like what were some of the things you were looking at to be sure that like it was the right product for you to buy? And did that product page give you those answers or did you have to do, did you have to do more investigation? Admittedly, I had the, uh, the, the advisement of my son to say, dad, those are the ones. Um, and that was as deep as my research went. I, I hope they're washable. I definitely hope they're washable. No, <laughs> I think he's past the drawing on stuff stage, but those are great points. I don't know. I, I actually don't know any of those things, but if I had wanted to know those things, you know what? Better example, Nerf guns. I have to always scroll to the bottom of the Amazon listing to learn all the things that I want to know about the Nerf gun. Yeah. And that's about, you know, you want to be confident in your purchase. Like that Nerf gun, those paint pens are the magical item that is going to make your son the hero of his, you know, class project or party or, you know, wherever you guys are hanging out with sniping me from the couch mostly exactly right um never never a dull moment there um and so it's really about um being able to understand i always say from the eye of the shopper what is that experience like how can a brand take that um not only price obviously in stock promotion but all those other pieces on that pdp ratings and reviews content videos um I love a good video. We know our consumers are digital first. We know they, they'd rather passively watch, like take, take a guide from YouTube and TikTok, right? Sure. Uh, marketing through video um, is, is really crucial. Um, you know, even I don't know if we're at the point where we'll see video ads on trucks driving around, right? But not, oh, it's not already that crazy there. of an idea. They're out there. there. There's, there's a company, there. there's a company that puts screens on the back of tractor trail. I don't, that seems unsafe to me. Yeah. But, that doesn't uh, seem good for driving. It's, it's but, a thing. You know, it's a thing. <laughs> video billboards, right? Um, so there it really becomes about a brand having connectivity to get insight along that path of purchase so they can bring those that data and metrics together in support of like their KPIs. Because brands will love to say, and I'll use a Nestle, um, they came out and said in one of their quarterly earnings, you know, we really want to make over 25% of our sales globally from e-commerce. Fantastic. How are they going to do that, right? Awesome. Uh, well, obviously, they've got to make one plus one, not equal three. They've got to make one plus one equal five, 10, 15 to get to that goal. Set and and what math. that really means is access to data all along that path to purchase so they can optimize where they need to and um, really like step change their, their full game on what is that customer experience like in engagement with advertising, but also at a retailer site and then at the brand.com. We have a lot of brands who like to divide brand.com and the retailer channels as two separate mm-hmm. things. And sometimes there are antitrust and regulations, depending on what country you're operating in. Um, but where you can, I think even now brand.com can really help drive retailer as well, because maybe fulfillment and shipping isn't as great on the brand.com as it can be at a retailer. Um, I've looked at a retailer site and then looked at the brand.com just to verify it was actually a, a real product, not a gray product or a counterfeit. Um, but then I might've went and purchased via the retailer site because I could cook and collect um, and get it the next day versus you know waiting three days for shipping. So it's about kind of teasing those pieces together. Um, with the data that's available so that a brand can react quickly. Um, you can't take like three months to determine if you might want to test and learn a different out of the home. Um, I'm kind of like, try it and and see. And if it doesn't work, okay, well, you know, and then you can kind of whittle the pool down of what's really going to help drive your core consumer to purchase. Speed speed is an advantage. Test, learn, optimize. And I don't know if this story is true. Maybe <laughs> Maybe we talked about this, but I think that there's a story out there. This is again dating dating myself here, so indulge me. That's okay. You're among friends. <laughs> <laughs> when when I believe it was Target put Target.com on the outside of their brick and mortar store very, very, very early on in kind of this online revolution, and there being a dispute with the land or lease owner about 
Target putting the dot com. I don't know if this is true. I feel like it's a thing I read or heard somewhere along the line. So, um, yeah, they're the same. They're the same to me anyway. I buy it online, pick it up at your store. It's it's the it's it's all the same. So, uh, yeah, I have stuff. to go look. I don't remember that one offhand, but I think it's really important as a brand to consider. You know, I, again, we go back to omni-channel, omni-shelf, right? Where what are all the shelves where your products are available? Your brand.com. Um, even if you don't have one, you're like, is it really worth it? If anything, having a where to buy on your brand.com. Some of our brands do a ton yep. of sales through their where to buys. Um, hardware is a new one where shoppers are, are coming into that space. They're more comfortable purchasing those items. Um, if you're a hardware brand, have a where to buy. You know, go to some of your top retailers. Well, how do you know who are your top retailers? Might want to take a look at the experience on those PDPs, right? Reward those retailers who are giving your shoppers that better experience by, you know, organizing them in a different way in the where to buy. Um, we ha- and we have some brands who use that data within Brand Monitor and the Where to Buy to go to their retailers and say, "Here's why we need a better partnership. Here's why we're not going to spend that much money on your retail media network." Uh, wow. Because, sorry, and I'll, I'll use like like maybe it's Menards, right, or Lowe's. Lowe's is always trying to unseat Home Depot as as the first retailer. And in the we Where to dragged buy. Home Depot a lot today, so sorry, Lowe's, but Home Lowe's, Depot often. Lowe's, if you want to sponsor this episode, this episode brought <laughs> no, to you by Lowe's. No, I will say this: Home Depot is. I hold Home Depot up like the target when it comes to like a CPG shopper experience. Home Depot is very much pushing innovation in the hardware and home goods category um, of like what that experience should look like, um, what it should be like. So if you if you go look at a Home Depot, a Menards, a Lowe's, an Ace Hardware, um, you know, I might look at something on a different retailer just because they might be more convenient to me. But I actually might go look at the product on Home Depot because I know I'm going to get that downloadable information. If I need install specs, I go to Home Depot. Yeah. They're usually always there. Um, they do provide a great customer experience, um, especially for brands who are able to deliver them that content. And that's often why they tend to be first in our word advice with our clients. They see a lot of visits and they also see a lot of conversion. Um, so you might see a brand.com first and then a Home Depot. And there's, there's a reason why. Um, so that's something for brands to consider too. What are the channels you're sending traffic to? And is that the kind of customer experience you want? Is that a best practice? And if you know you're, and if they're not performing, well, let's take a look at it. Um, because if you're seeing purchases happen on other channels, well, it's it's like the tire story. I I always say go look at Pet Boys Tire Rack, Costco Tire, Walmart Tire, um, and a couple of the other ones, and tell me where you think you're going to purchase your tires from. It's funny because <laughs> shopping for tires, been, Tim. <laughs> this has been a trip down memory lane. So let's just you know uh, finish it off here. Tire Rack. I remember when Tire Rack first came out. That was where you went to get the discount. You saved significant. There was yes, there was yep, that much of a yep. difference when when they were. But it's all reached about parity, and um, the platform revolution is upon us. How can we integrate more of those customer experiences so that the shopper doesn't have to go to all of these other places to get the information? How can McCormick use recipes to enable more people to cook more things? Right? How can we use data to build an ecosystem that enables? our best customers and attracts more people that are just like our best customers. Yep. Shoppable recipes. Um, The other way to think of a where to buy, it could also be a list or a bundle of products. And so um, where can you make it easy for consumers? Where can you say, oh, we know, um, you know, let's take baby where if someone purchased diapers, you know, how can we help them easily sort to the right size? Um, You know, and size is determined by weight, right? And it changes. So am I in a 2T or a three or a size one or size two? Um, you know, how can you make that easy? But also I'm probably purchasing wipes. Maybe I'm purchasing, you know, lotion as well with it. Um, bundling is a big one. Um, it's become really interesting for brands to kind of play with the assortment that they have available online versus in store to kind of make some of those online channels sticky for shoppers. They know are probably going to be e-commerce shoppers anyways. 
there's some, you know, there's some consumers who are like, I don't need to go in store. I never find what I need in stock anyways. Or they're worried about security. They're worried about, we haven't even touched on what's happening in retail in the US. And um, it's hard to hire for uh, seasonal right now. In oh, sure. Yeah. yeah so right, how's that's... that going to impact stock and shelves? And that's like a whole, probably another topic. And then the customer um, experience that comes with it. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, do we think that's here to stay? No, but it's definitely helping spur loyalty and stickiness with e-commerce channels versus in-store mm. shopping in some areas where that really is a big concern. Stay tuned for part two, right? I can't <laughs> thank you enough for being here. Give folks the lat long if they want to learn more about Price Spider and all of the incredible work that you do, the brands that you work with and the ways that, that maybe them, they themselves can take advantage of the services you offer. Tell folks where to go. Absolutely. So PriceFighter, you can find us at PriceFighter.com. So just spell it like it's named. Uh, we love to say like we've been crawling uh, the internet before, gosh, even Facebook was a thing. So we were founded in 2001. So I always like to mention that our founder, John, was uh, in the business of crawling even before, you know, that iPhone was in your hand. And now we're looking at app crawling. Um, so PriceFighter.com for that. Um, for me, uh, LinkedIn is a great place to catch me. Um, I, I love to grow my network and have conversations like these with retailers, brands, you know, people in the marketing space. So those are all good options to kind of reach out for more details and information. Incredible. We'll link to all of that in the show notes below. Ray, thank you again. Appreciate you sharing as much as you have. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate the opportunity. We'll talk Absolutely. soon. Absolutely. And if you found this to be helpful, please share it with someone who could benefit. As always, make sure to smash that subscribe button and wherever you're listening from, make sure to leave the podcast review. That's how you help us grow. We'll see you all next time. Quarter century, I finally came to my senses. I finally got my hand up on the tinted Benz kid. I see the world clear through my tinted lenses. With the dream and the drive, the possibilities endless. Now print that, send this all the way to Tokyo. Take a trip down south, down to Mexico. Next stop, Shanghai, the world class trade show. First class all the way, cause that's how we roll. Yeah, call us the rock star businessman. Rocking shows we handle business, man. We got our own future in the palm of our hands, cause. Divided we fall and together we stand